This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Yannick Menge. And I'm Luke Elvides Meble. And our topic this week is... I bought a retro console. Hmm, I'm not so sure about that. But first of all, we have some follow-up. Yes, we do. Okay, um, actually, I'm going to let you start because my stuff is technically not follow-up. So there you go. Okay, le- let's go with that. Uh, my first follow-up is uh, in episode 17. The episode, the name Splatoon, where we talk, uh, where I talked about Splatoon 2. We also talked that Splatoon was the first game to beta test the Nintendo Switch Online uh, platform. And now Nintendo officially announced the release date for it. So when you hear my beloved voice, you'll be days away from the release because the release is on September 18. Uh, I won't go into too much detail what Nintendo Switch Online contains because we talked about it in other episodes since episode 70. But, uh, and also tomorrow, which is Thursday for the of recording, uh, September 13, there's also be a Nintendo Direct. So I'm sure we'll have uh, even more follow up later on about that. But more or less to say is Nintendo Switch Online is finally shipping and it should be to a Switch near you quite soon. Is that the new date for the Nintendo Direct? Because I know there was supposed to be a Nintendo Direct and then it got moved because of earthquakes in Japan. Yeah, that's that's that is, that are the news that I've seen too, that they got moved and then they announced that it will be tomorrow. It was quite funny because uh, Tony and I were discussing about it. I was like, oh, today is your big is my big day and tomorrow is your big day. Yeah. Uh, because Tony uh, thinks that there'll be even more news about Let's Go Pokemon, so... I, I'm also very amused that um, Nintendo said we're going to have news on Switch and 3DS games. <laughs> like the 3DS oh, still isn't yeah, dying. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, but you know what? The 3DS survived longer than the Vita, so hey, we need to at least mention that. It's technically not dead in Japan. Sure, but the 3DS is not dead everywhere in the world. So fair enough. Yeah. Okay, uh, next point, after uh, listening to our previous episode about Yannick describing the arcade situation in Japan, I had one small follow-up question to you. Yep. And it was really regarding your last statement at the end. So you said that the main reason why we were talking about the arcade experience in Japan was that you're trying to recreate that gaming experience at home. And something I felt you left unanswered was our people that are arcade fans trying to reproduce that in their home in japan so of course it's hard to say like if this is going to be a mainstream thing like i think for the most part the reasons arcades are dying in japan are because people don't care about the arcades anymore and therefore the majority of people are not going to care about the arcade recreating the arcade experience at home um but there is a dedicated uh subset of the community which is interested in doing so. Uh, I follow, well, I have some saved searches on Twitter uh, for a couple of hashtags. Uh, there's one, which is, I turned my room into an arcade, which is basically <laughs> people who collect arcade machines and pack them into their tiny Japanese homes. Uh, and they usually post a bunch of photos of that. And there are a couple other saved searches. I'll put them in the show notes uh, that I have, which are basically just like pornography for arcade fans of people collecting arcade cabinets or trying to recreate the arcade experience at home. So there are certainly people in Japan who are doing it. It's just not a mainstream thing. It's kind of a crazy nerd thing like 
it is for me. Okay, no, that's quite what I've assumed, especially with all of what we mentioned about the housing uh, situation in Japan, which is it's hard to get a small apartment in Japan and it's super expensive. So it's hard huge... to get a big apartment in Japan. True, true. Sorry, I said small, but it's it's common to have small apartments everywhere. Yes. but small apartment that is not well suited for big cabinets like arcade cabinets. So that 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 was intriguing me, especially if there was a lot of people that were trying to do as you were trying to do with your own apartment, aka reproducing the arcade experience at home. Yep. So, do you have any other follow up before we move to our quick mini topic of what we've teased last episode? Uh, well, I have some semi follow up about Destiny Two. So, as you may remember, Ooh. a year ago we did an episode about how much I hate Destiny Two. <laughs> That's an understatement, but sure. And uh, for most of the last year, Bungie has been apologizing profusely to Destiny fans that they have messed up the game. Uh, year two of Destiny 2 kicked off this week with the release of Destiny 2 Forsaken, and I have played it, and Destiny 2 sucks a lot less. Um, there is always going to be like some good and some bad, because Bungie a lot of the time takes two steps forward, one step back, and there are numerous things in the game that are that way uh, that I could complain about, but nobody cares about the minute details. But for the most part, Destiny 2 Forsaken is actually a really big big improvement, and there is a new mode called uh, Gambit, which is my new favorite mode of all of Destiny so far, so I've been playing a ton of that. Uh, and it is probably the main reason I'm going to keep playing Destiny 2, uh, I still have a bunch of story stuff to do, which is surprising because normally by now you finish the story stuff uh, very quickly in uh, a Destiny game, especially an expansion. Um, so yeah, it, it seems like there's a lot more longevity in this one, and that is interesting to me. And a lot of the concerns I had have been resolved. The problem is uh, this is a massively multiplayer online game, and I'm the only one of my gang of friends who bought it. Uh, so that is an issue. Uh, but for now, I am doing whatever I can on my own, and maybe in the future they'll buy it and we'll get to go on a raid together. I forgot, uh, deal, the PSN Plus deal of this month, was it on Destiny 1 or 2? So, Destiny 2 is free for all of September for PlayStation Plus okay, members. However, uh, there's a catch, uh, which is, if you want to play Forsaken, which is the good expansion, you need to own destiny 2 the base game yes but also the two previous expansions and the new expansion which means Ooh. if you want to buy all of them at a reduced price you need to pay 80 bucks for destiny 2 the collection which is effectively the price of a new game which means you're not actually really saving any money by getting destiny 2 for free on the thing because destiny 2 the collection also includes the base game so it's sort of more like an enhanced free trial of sorts yeah that's kind of what i assume is is if they fix the complaints that gamers add with the game and by making it free for people that heard the complaints and never bought it maybe then they could spend the money on the expansion what's interesting about how destiny is structured as a game is that a lot of the improvements that were made in forsaken actually are backported to the base game because they share the same engine and therefore major systems changes are going to be shared across non-expansion players and expansion players so technically the destiny 2 experience is better even if you have the best of the base game but I think it is best enjoyed when coupled with the new content that was especially built for it uh, in Forsaken. And in general, Forsaken is 
pretty good expansion, even if you don't care about Destiny at all. Like, it has a self-contained story that makes sense to people, even if you know nothing about the Destiny story, which, let's be honest, is most people. Uh, so that's good. Um, next up in my follow-up is my not follow-up, which is a, not follow. an anecdote that I wanted to tell on the previous episode, but I could not. Uh, and it is about Apple Maps, which is a running topic on this show, but not an actual topic we did in full episode about. Uh, and I want to share uh, something about the bus stop closest to my new apartment. Um, so if I leave my apartment and I go outside to the left not even 150 meters away from my door is a bus stop. Apple Maps, when I do transit directions, does not know what this bus stop is. It's on the map, but it never takes it into consideration when I ask for transit directions. And I was very confused about this until I figured it out a couple of weeks ago. And one of the problems with living downtown, well, not problems for me because I don't drive, but problems for my parents, specifically my mom, uh, is there are a lot of one-way streets. And the issue is that the street outside of my house is a one-way street in the opposite direction of the where the bus stop is. So what I realized is because the bus stop is to the left and the one-way forces people to go to the right, their directions, even walking directions, just between my house and the bus stop are just impossible. So it's like, well, you can't go that direction. So that bus stop can't use it. So let's take you to another bus stop, which is like 750 meters away in the other direction because it's, you can't go to that bus stop because it's a one way street. This is infuriating because now I have to basically like every time I do transit directions, I have to specify I am leaving from this bus stop or else it doesn't work. But it's one of those weird, infuriating Apple Maps quirks. Although I did upgrade to iOS 12 earlier, and I did not test it there, so maybe it's better. But I just wanted to share an Apple Maps story because it's been a while since we've had an Apple Maps story. Yeah, it seems like uh, for another reason, it's not considering that you're walking and not driving, which is strange to me. Definitely. Could be just like bad data, which with Apple Maps wouldn't surprise me, sadly, still. Supposed to get better, though. But yeah, yeah but not, not for in Canada. Canada. <laughs> not for Canada. Come of on, of course getting, not. Getting better for people living uh, next to the Apple Park. <laughs> no, yeah. next to the Apple Park first, and then the next block after the Apple Park a week after, and then hopefully by the end of the century, it's like everybody in the world. But probably we'll see. Okay, let's talk about the Apple event. Good. I think I'll start this small section by saying that we won't talk about big details. I think, like we've done in the past episode, we mainly will talk about what we like and dislike quickly, uh, what we are planning to maybe buy or not. We'll have to see. I think there's already money flying away from my pockets already the second I say that, but let's, I digress a bit. Uh, and I think that should be it. Uh, there's going to be a lot of good episodes from a lot of different podcasts and or other media that we would suggest you to go through. So that's why we don't want to repeat everything of that. But we just want to give our personal like opinion and feelings. Uh, I'd say like I would say like six to ten hours after the event. I don't want to do the exact math right away, but like just like f uh, initial like feelings from the Limipo team. Actually, before we talk about the Apple event proper, we should talk about what happened 
when we woke up this morning, which is... That's true. <laughs> the Apple event got leaked by Apple again. Yay! Again. Yeah, right. So uh, if you're a web developer, you know that you can create sitemap files, which tell Google and other search engines, but let's be honest, mostly Google, uh, which web pages you want them to index on your server so they, do, they don't have to wait for it to show up with a link on the page. Uh, for them to know about it, they can just start indexing those pages in the background. Um, and somebody smart. I was it Rambo? I forgot. Uh, no, it was some random website that I think uh, it was 95 Mac re relinked or something. Yeah, I forget I the seen, name of the site. I think what happened yesterday with Rambo is he confirmed the uh, how we got the image a couple of weeks ago. Right. But this is a different source. Uh, so some random website, which we'll link in the show notes. Of course uh, we will. Found the sitemap for the website and where they were like, oh, all of these Apple store URLs for products that have not been announced yet are in the sitemap. And it was published on uh, that website and then 9to5Mac reposted it and the rest is history. Uh, so we knew pretty much every SKU that was going to be announced during the the keynote ahead of time we just didn't know the prices or well we didn't know what it looked like but i guess the particulars of various colors we didn't know um so yeah that happened and then a couple hours later we got to see the actual details yes and the exact details are the following so no new ipads yet i guess uh only the new phone only and the rumor we've got are quite exact so we got three new phones the 10s 10s max and 10r yes okay i did it correctly yes good so um this to me feels like a like a typical uh s here uh i'm a quite sad that now i'm because of the iphone 10 i am i was quote-unquote forced to move away from the, te- the s year and I'm not planning to buy a new phone this year to go back on the S year. So it seems that from now on, I'm on the new design year. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, but yeah, so it's mainly better CPU, better face ID, which I'm eager to see in person. Uh, better camera and all that typical stuff with a S year. The big feature for this year, though, is really that we can have a quote-unquote plus by by the plus name size on the iphone 10 size which is now called max which as you might imagine you just take the physical size of an iphone plus size and then just make it iphone 10 look and iphone 10 design and voila uh the iphone 8 is still there but the replacement this upgrade to that lineup is this iphone 10r which is akin to the iphone 5c and uh, with colors but i think the main distinction this year is it is not a lower uh, less powerful device it's it reminds me of when they introduced the SEs. same cpu maybe not the best camera but you should be the same uh, image processing and same lens so you don't have the dual camera here you still have a single camera lens but it is the same uh, sensor on it as the new phones it uh, has an aluminum back, I guess, to not make it look cheap like the 5C was. So it seems to me that the 10R is really fixing the mistake that Apple did with the 5C while bringing back colorful uh, designs to the iPhone, which to me, those colors are still like, I wouldn't say that they're the phone to buy. It will really depend on your needs, but it would be hard to resist those phones because the colors 
on them are quite pretty and amazing. Uh, they have like five colors, things like black, white, or silver, blue, coral, yellow, red, and yellow. Yes, yeah, six colors. Sorry, I missed that. Uh, they, they don't five. count the product red when they yes. say five colors, which is the issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always get mixed up with that. But um, we have those five colors plus product red, and they just look amazing. And as rumored, as the rumor said a week or two ago, this phone is getting released in a month compared to the new phones that are getting released next week. Which is kind of baffling for a lower-end model. Um, I, I do want to qualify this. Like in, in many ways, the iPhone XR is like the spiritual successor to the iPhone SE because it is practically the same phone with a few minor downgrades as the XS in a different case. Um, the main issue where I think that it is not the SE2 is that when the SE launched, it was at $400 and this one launched at $750, uh, which is a massive difference. And it is. Oh, yeah, I was not comparing the price. I was comparing the same strategy of putting the same stuff in it. The main difference was the SE was six months later after the success. Right. But I mean, I've been referring to the 10R as a low end phone all day. And $750, I'm not sure that is actually true, that it is a low end phone. I think it is a mid range iPhone. For the first time, they actually have something that I think qualifies as mid range. You wouldn't qualify the iPhone 8 as a mid-range phone? Mm. Because it felt to me last yeah, last year, year yeah. that it was somewhat mid-range-ish. And my grandma has an 8 Plus, and it is an amazing phone. So I, I, I don't want to take away from it because it, it is still a great phone. Uh, and it's still being sold uh, alongside the 7. And I mean, like those phones, it's kind of weird because, because they keep pushing down the premium phones... Uh, Nothing really feels low-end. It just feels like an old high-end iPhone, which is kind of weird. Yeah, and I think that's what—that's the lesson they learned from the, uh, the 5C is not that the... I will do a generalization by calling the back plastic. I know it's a fancy plastic, and it is true. Like, you compare to any other, at that time, Android phone that had plastic or even real plastic back, um, the 5C always felt good. But even if you try to make the plastic fancy, if you compare it to a metal like aluminum uh, or any other metal, if you were talking even about stainless steel, it looks cheaper for sure. It's not it might not be cheap, but it does feel and look cheaper. But the amazing thing is I'm not sure. Like If you made a high-end iPhone with the 5C plastic case, I'm not actually sure that the high-end aluminum phone would necessarily win in sales. I think people might actually want the shiny, plastic, colorful iPhone because it looks cool, but no one wants to buy the low-end phone necessarily. Oh, yeah, and I think that the problem was not that the back was plastic. The problem was the back was different. Yeah, but I... um... I don't know. I I think there's a place for different products where, where I don't really like that... All of the iPhones sort of look the same. Hmm. Oh, that that's quite interesting. It feels to me, and it's fresh opinion, let's be honest, maybe it will change in the next few weeks, but it feels to me that I think right now they're playing it, they're playing it safe. It feels that it looks the same, but it's different enough. Different screen, different colors. We're going back onto the 
oh, it's not only like black and silver and maybe some gold to be different. It's yeah, it's yeah, about time they flashy. go back to colors. <laughs> yeah, it's fla- and flashy colors. It's really good colors I think they've chose. So, like, I'm, I'm going to be honest here. The 10R is much more appealing to me. Like, even putting aside price, I just think the 10R is a nicer looking phone than the 10S. Mm, I I think you're right, but oh man, this stainless steel gold. I don't want to spoil too much the Apple Watch section. Well, but, oh. do we want to move on to Apple Watch right away? Because I, I'm pretty much done with iPhone stuff right now. Yeah, I think it makes it clear. So Yannick is going to uh, to die with his SE, and that's it. And oh, then yeah, we we should talk about screen sizes. So what it's. 5.5 inches, 6.1 inches, and 6.5 inches? No, it's uh, 5.8, 6.1, Okay, so basically, it's fucking huge phones. <laughs> yeah, I was surprised that you were really asking about the exact numbers because you don't really care about the exact numbers. It's fucking huge phones, and for someone who hated the 4.7 inch, I hate all of these phones already. Uh, yeah, I think I'm just going to keep using this iPhone SE until I can't use it anymore. And then I don't know what I'm going to do. Cry, probably. Yeah, it's weird, though. I remember when we went on the, when we went to the 3.5 to the 4, right? Which is what, yeah, the 4-inch device. And we're like, oh my god, it's so big. And then we get got used to it. And then if you wanted to do that, and then you did the 4 to 4.7, I think that was the biggest leap. And then the second you go there, like, the, the difference is somewhat small like i don't think they're like small differences but i didn't do the exact math so but it felt to me that once you move to the 4.7 the like the relative difference between the size felt smaller and then you already used to somewhat big so yeah but the problem is the year i had a 4.7 inch phone i could never get over it it bothered me every single time i used my phone I did forget that you have an iPhone. You had an iPhone 6 at some point. Right. It's not like I didn't try it. It's just that That's I fucking hated that phone and I See? couldn't wait to get rid of it. And See, now you're... I'm dreading the idea of getting another iPhone that I don't like. Your hatred of it erased my memory of you owning one. That's good. I want to erase those memories sure as well. Good. I'm not sure if it's good, but oh well. So all of this is to say is Yannick hates big phone. I'm happy with my iPhone 10, so we're not getting new phones this year. Do you know one way you can nullify the downsides of having a huge phone? You can leave it in your bag and use your Apple Watch instead. That's a segue, folks. <laughs> wow, that's a really bad one, but <laughs> You okay. could also just not have a phone if you're not going to use it. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. So, like Nick mentioned, uh, there's new watches. Uh, the main feature of it is they are taller and thinner. Uh I forgot. Oh man, I forgot to look at the exact numbers to do the comparison of how thin it is compared to the current uh, Series Three. I, I've been hearing a bunch of people going back and forth on Twitter disagreeing about whether it is actually thinner or not. The closest thing I've heard right now is that it's functionally identical to the uh, the Series One, uh, Series Two, and Series Three watches. But I thought those got thicker because of a GPS and then cellular. Maybe it was the zeros and ones then. But anyway, p- people are debating crazily on the internet uh, whether these are thicker or thinner. So basically, I understand that it, 
doesn't fucking matter. Uh, what matters is that the screen is bigger in the same case, size, more or less. Uh, yes, uh, we will put a link in the show notes to a tweet from uh, somebody uh, that was doing a comparison, and I'm sorry for your name, you'll find your name in the show notes, but uh, it is a comparison between the, I have the image there, so it's a comparison of the 38 to 40 models and the 42 to the 44 millimeters models, and you know what, they are physically more or less the same. To me, the main difference seems to be because they're not the same rounded corner shape that it makes it a bit wider and taller, but we're talking like maybe a millimeter or two it seems to me looking at the current image that the difference between the 42 and 44 is smaller than the 38 to 40 in practice from what i could get uh because i watched some of the developer sessions that they put up about designing apps for a series four earlier uh basically apps on the 40 millimeter new watch run exactly like they did on the 42 uh, the margins have changed by a couple of pixels, and I believe the dynamic type size is slightly different as a default, but otherwise, like, they run as if they were on a 42. Uh, where things get a little bit trickier is on the 44, where it's a new screen size that was never managed there, and there are new icon sizes for that model. Uh, but otherwise, your apps should just scale, because in general, there's less weird layout stuff that goes on on the Apple Watch anyway. Okay. Real-time follow-up. Uh, I have the numbers for the thickness. Okay. So, according to Apple's website, when you do the comparison, the Series 3 is 11.4 millimeter thin. And then the Series 4 is 10.7 millimeters thin. So it's mm, 4 plus 3, 7.7 millimeters thinner compared to the Series 3. And by quickly Googling, it seems that the... Uh, the watch series real, which is the one we have, is 10.5 millimeters. So it's still quote unquote thicker by 0.2 millimeters compared to uh, the series zero and one, but compared to the two and three, uh, they are it is thinner. And one of the things to note is that the big bulb behind the uh, Apple Watch, uh, which presses into your skin and uh, handles heart measurements and stuff like that, it is flatter on the new watch than it is on previous watches yeah so it's less of a bulb right huh now i'm even more excited about this new watch i am very excited for this watch so basically the the photos we uh, (laughs) mentioned on the last episode were pretty much exactly like this the introduction frames from the keynote uh the watch face is unfortunately real um Luckily, the modular face has not only been updated for larger uh, complications, but it's gotten like a minor redesign that appears to only be on the Series 4, which is interesting. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure about all the watch faces. I would like to see like photos of all of the watch faces running on the new watch to see what they look like. Because right now, uh, even though I updated, updated my phone to... Uh, iOS 12. I can't update my watch because it's too old, uh, and I can only see them on like Series 2 screen size uh, in the watch app, so I'm not sure what they look like on the real thing, and hopefully I'll find a bunch of photo galleries on the internet from people who were in the hands-on area. They just weren't up yet when I was uh, at home earlier. Best main feature of this new watch. Pan compatibility. Woo! Yeah, that's a big deal. Um, it was funny. I was um a bit 
worried until I saw I saw this tweet from Andre Plot that I found his name finally that uh, that if the physical size of the watch changed so much that maybe this time I will opt for the smaller one and that would render my bands mostly incompatible. But looking at the physical size, uh, I'm probably sure that I'll go with the 44 millimeter one and just enjoy uh, the more or less the same physical size on my wrist but with a bigger screen. Right, so let's talk about what we're getting. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. I think you should start first because you add big ambitions. Right, so I've been eyeing the Apple Watch Hermes for a long time because I'm a big fan of the Hermes luxury brand. And relative to basically anything else that they sell, the Apple Watch bands are the most reasonable thing they sell. Surprisingly enough, it is true. You sent me a, what, a $300 t-shirt? Yeah, $375 t-shirt, which is literally just like one flat color. They were really nice colors, but they were really fucking expensive. Um, And like, I've been to their shops. I go to their shops every time I'm in Japan because I love their that brand. And everything is insanely priced. And the watch bands, like you can buy them individually without the watch. And I think that's probably the better deal, to be honest, uh, because at least you're not spending it all at once. Um, and there's rotations for the bands as the seasons happen. So that's also interesting. But yeah, then I saw the Canadian prices for the Apple Watch Hermes. <laughs> And actually, no, that's not true. I saw the American prices yes. for the Apple Watch Hermes, and I was like, yeah, this is more expensive than I was willing to pay. And then you sent me the Canadian prices for Apple Watch yeah. Hermes. You were like, oh, it's like $1,500. Like, uh, what? No, 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 no. The cheapest one in Canadian dollars is like $1,600. And like, yeah. what? So basically then I said, eh, I mean, I, <laughs> I, I have the money. I could buy it. It's just I really shouldn't. So I looked at my bands and I said, what watch would go best with the bands that I have? And more importantly, what is the band that I wear the most? And it is my Midnight Blue Nike Plus band with the holes in it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And one of the things that I really liked a couple of years ago is they had the gold aluminum with the Midnight Blue band and it looked really awesome. So I was like, hmm. I bet the gold stainless steel would look really good with that band too. So right now my current plan is gold stainless steel with the, I think it's the stone sports band or whatever. It's maybe sable or something. It's, it's basically sandy colored, uh, Apple watch band, sports band, which let's be honest. I'm probably not going to use that band. I'm going to switch to the Nike plus sports band because I enjoy that one more. And then I will have an approximation of the golden midnight blue, Aluminum, except in stainless steel, and I will feel really cool. The one thing that really bothers me, though, and this I, I'm sure this is bugging everybody else right now, is the stupid red ring on the digital crown doesn't match with the color palette that I'm going for, and that drives me crazy. Yeah, at least at this point, it is an outline. It's not filled in, so it's less problematic, but right. still can be. But what they could do to win me back is they could make a really nice dark red band that matches that ring and I might buy it. And mm-hmm. I think I think they had a red band like that in the editions when the first yeah. generation watch was out. They they have the typical sport band, the product red sport band, but that's not I think that's not what I mean. You. Right. Yeah, you want a deeper red for that. Right. I want the red that matches with what's on the ring. 
Oh my, Yannick. Oh no, I found it. But the problem is it's, oh, it's, it will be fine for you because you're, uh, you're uh, like a small watch person. Yeah, I'm a 38 millimeter right now. So it is called the Ruby Product Red Modern Buckle. And it's quite, like, quite strong red. It's beautiful. But it is only for a smaller bottle because the Modern Buckle always has been. I will have to look that up. Although, uh, uh, while we're speaking about things uh, where bands are only available for certain sizes, that's another thing that bothers me about the Hermes line. Like, I understand why they do it, uh, because they want to design the watch as a whole product, and they don't want people mixing and matching things that shouldn't fit. Although, let's be honest, you can buy individual Hermes bands anyways, just not all of them. So it's kind of a weird thing. Uh, but like certain colors were only available in 44 millimeter, and I'm like, but what if I want it in 40 millimeter? Sorry, you can't. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to go look up this band uh, while you tell me what you're buying. Okay. So since you were having a strong dilemma with the Hermes, I've been having the same dilemma since Apple released the... Uh, oh, let me look at what the proper name of it this generation. But the... Uh, the Okay, they call it the Space Black Stainless Steel. So this... They add a somewhat equivalent color with the Series Zero uh, six months after it launched. And I was like, oh, it looks good. And I remember also uh, trying the Milanese Loop and quite liking it. So um, my idea before the event was set, and before we saw the leak images, was set to a stainless steel space black model this generation. Uh, one of the things I was not able to confirm is now the, the, the Apple com- directly confirmed in the keynote that all of the backings are the same now, whether you have aluminum or stainless steel, which is, which is a great benefit. You don't have this kind of plasticky back. But what I love about the stainless steel model is you also get the sapphire display, uh, which I uh, could try to quickly look it up, but oh well. Uh, I'm not sure if they've done that, and I wouldn't be surprised that they did not for price reasons. So I always add my mindset on stainless steel models because of that. Because right now, after three years of wearing it daily, uh, yes, the case is quite scratched as stainless is when you wear it daily, but the screen is perfect. Like it is even like it it is right now i'm looking at it and it is better than my six year no my one year old iphone 10 screen which funnily enough like has deep scratches in it it's not broken but uh, as a lot of people mentioned on the web that it is at least more shatter resistant but less scratch resistant so i i hope that they fix that in the new model but i digress so uh all of this is to stay and I'm trying to buy time because I'm still unsure which color I want. <laughs> uh, I don't want to buy one of these with the sport one because if I, like, first of all, if I go back to stand, normal stainless steel, it comes with a white sport band. And you know what? I really don't care about the white sport band. And if I were to go to space black, I will get another black sport band, which uh, in this family, since Tony bought an Apple Watch Series 1, we have two. So I don't care too much. And now I'm looking at the prices and I'm eyeing the Milanese loop, which is problem A. Problem B is the release of the gold stainless steel. Mm. But imagine mixing that up with the stainless steel, the gold stainless steel plus the gold Milanese loop. And I'm like, oh my, 
effing god. I do want that, but at the same time, like, is that too blingy shiny? If you see what I mean? <laughs> yeah, that, that's part of the reason. Like, I was thinking about. Well, my watch is pretty understated now. It would just be changing the outside case so that it fits more with the color scheme I'm going for. And, and to be honest, I'm still waffling about it because I could change my mind at any moment. And the thing that worries me is that the gold aluminum was more of a ginger ale colored uh, gold, whereas I'm not entirely sure of how this gold is going to look. Uh, and again, I'm going to have to go look at more photo galleries and all that to really take a real decision. Uh, because yeah. la- when we were talking about it, like la- last episode, it was almost copper to our eyes. And I don't think it looks that copper now that I've seen it in different lighting. Yeah, but it's always hard too. to tell. Yeah. Which, since, right, you know what? Since I'm still unsure, and also since last time, Last year, I bought my phone directly to the store. I didn't pre-order it because I was not able to pre-order I could have pre-ordered it, but then I was too late at 3 a.m. I decided to... Oh, I forgot if I was late or just unsure. I think it's a mix of both. <laughs> yeah, it's a mix of both. But uh, what, I, what ended up happening was like I just woke up at 3 a.m. another day just to do reserve in store, and then I just went in store to get it. So I might be thinking of doing that, which is funny because uh, my good uh, friend and colleague Asanan, he did that with a watch and he compared the queue to get the new watch to the phone. And he was like, he said, oh, uh, I might be on some Apple PR screenshots, uh, uh, photos because I was in the store to get the watch Mm. because he was like one of the few people in Canada to get it on day one. Nice. So it, it was never confirmed to him whether he was like one of the first few Canadians to get it, but it was kind of implied because they took a, a picture, a lot of picture of him. So he was like a bit, uh, oh my God, what's happening? So it was quite funny when he came back to the office saying like, uh, describing his experience. Now I'm just reminded of an episode of Cortex when CGP Grey got the first iPad Pro in London and yes, he, he hates being the center of attention and everybody in the Apple store was trying really hard to get him to take photos and stuff to celebrate being the first person with the iPad Pro and he was just trying to get the fuck out of there as quickly <laughs> as possible. So I'm going to try to find that timestamp and put it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, okay. I. For sure, hundred percent sure, stainless steel. Which color? We'll see. If I'm trying to chime in for the Milanese, we will see. Uh, one interesting note about the pricing is I went back and saw, uh, find my original receipt for my Series Zero, and if I were to buy the same uh, configuration, which is just stainless steel with sport band, the price grew by two hundred and ten dollars. And that's a combination of multiple things. Like there's the exchange rate, which has just gotten worse in general. Yes. And there's also the fact that you can't buy stainless steel without also buying a cellular watch, which pisses me off. Like they shouldn't do that. But it's available in certain countries where there's just no cellular Apple watch, I believe. Yes. But you can't buy it outside of those countries, which is kind of a pain in the ass. Yeah. Uh, You're right that the exchange rate is not helping this price difference, but I think a lot of it is really because the stainless steel price grew in the last few years. Is they 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 winded the gap 
between the normal, the aluminum one, and then the stainless steel one, just to make some space and also to because you're forced to get cedar since last year. But there's also just like the general trend of Apple wanting to raise the average sale price of products that are already quite expensive, which we will probably discuss on an upcoming episode. So I don't want to spend too much time about it, but I am growing increasingly uncomfortable with how much money Apple is trying to milk out of us every year. So a little yeah. food for thought. <laughs> Let's not talk about the price of iPhone themselves. As a quick note, just to make us cry before we move away from this topic, if you want to buy a iPhone XS Max with 512 gigs of storage, it costs $2,000 Canadian. It's pronounced yep. iPhone XS. Yes, XS. XS Ten- Max. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Shout out to is- Serena Williams. Yep, yep. So that is it for our... our shopping list let's put this way <laughs> about this apple event uh i'm sure there's going to be a lot uh, oh i think one note that is important that we should mention is again this year just after the event ended apple posted more developer videos on their website on the developer web- website that is of course uh to help you better um take advantage of the functionality and one of them that is interesting is now the new phone have a different NFC chip that can wake up the phone in specific apps. Like you can program your the NFC reader to wake up your app when it detects a specific NFC card or NFC token that is being read by the phone. So it seems that there's some good improvements from NFC. Hopefully our Japanese friend won't have the same issues that Enix discussed in previous episodes with the iPhone 10. Hopefully the watch doesn't have an issue like that because it's a new form factor. That's true too. Hopefully that all of that is uh, not causing more issues, but that's added functionality to the NFC stack from Apple, and that's quite interesting. I do want to add that one of the flagship uses for the nfc pairing thing is um sony made a couple of cameras a couple of years ago that were like they were really weird they were basically just lenses that were oh, also yeah. cameras and the back of them had an nfc chip so if you had a sony xperia phone you could just tap the lens to the back of the phone and it would automatically pair the camera to the phone and you could do stuff and now technically you could do that with an iphone which is cool i don't think those they're still making those cameras anymore because I don't think they sold particularly well. Uh, but it's still a thing that Sony does is they put NFC in their cameras in general and you can tap them to your device to actually pair them with their mobile app. So hopefully Sony will take advantage of it and I'm sure other people will do stuff like that, like uh, museum tour apps or stuff like that. Uh, there are a lot of practical applications for that and maybe even something like Siri shortcuts where you could put an NFC tag somewhere. Uh, I know there are apps on Android that let you do this where you can program various shortcuts to specific NFC tags. And then when you get in your car, you tap the NFC thing and your car workflow executes or whatever. So lots of potential uses coming down the pipeline. To be honest, like I upgraded to iOS 12, like a couple hours before we started recording. And right now, like aside from screen time, there is not much, well, aside from screen time and a lot better performance on older <laughs> devices, there's not much to see in iOS 12. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what developers have made with iOS 12 over the summer. Uh, looking forward to mashing that update all button in the app store a lot during the next few weeks. 
yeah uh, all of those os updates are coming next monday on um the day after we release so on september 17 and mac os will be a week after that's mainly it i think oh no the last last comment i have for nfc was it feels to me that this new update feels felt like what they should have done years ago with ibeacon but ibeacon was never that especially your museum example uh, i think the reliability of nfc is way better than ibeacons and i'm happy to see apple move into that direction although now with um object permanence in ar kit who knows what's going to happen in museums from now on <laughs> that's true that's true um i think now we've done talking about new stuff yep now we need to go back to old retro console but it's not like a retro console so like i said in my intro and i bought a new console but it is not new in the same it is new because it's a new nintendo console but it's not new because it is a re-release of the nes classic so yes when a nintendo start to ship again a new uh, nes classic i took this opportunity to go around montreal and try to find uh, some in store because i missed uh, the original uh, window in uh, 2016 and also missed the first few days of the re-release in june so got mine in mid-july um Weirdly enough, by the way, did you know that the official name for it is the Nintendo Entertainment System Semicolon NES Classic Edition? It's kind of redundant, this name. It's uh, typical Nintendo naming. Sure, but uh, I guess I'm not well aware of typical Nintendo naming. I was like doing some research, like, what the fuck is that name? And then I look at the box, it's like, yes, it says Nintendo Entertainment System at the top of the box, and then it says NES Classic Edition. So, more or less, uh, yes, I got an NES Classic Edition. Uh, it has a weird official name, but who cares? Uh, well, who- I, I can sort of explain away like how that name came to be. It's because they're, rip- they're ripping off the original box for the Nintendo Entertainment System, and the NES Classic Edition is just sort of what they added on top of it just to s- distinguish it from the original box, basically. Ooh, okay, like the design of the box for the NES Classic is very similar to the box for the original Nintendo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and you get a poster of the original NES ad in it too. That's quite, uh, quite, quite of a nice, nice touch. Now I know, but still, well, I found that quite uh, funny doing uh, my research and didn't, was not even didn't properly look at the box at first. A uh, quick uh, history of this really uh, of this uh, console, so. Nintendo released that console originally in November 2016, on the 11th to be exact. And there was a huge issue when they released it originally. It was in limited supply. Uh, Nintendo never really said why they were doing it this way. They also never said how many they will like build and try to sell. But a couple of months later, like they were, they ran out completely. Um, and after a lot of complaining from fans and also with the release of the SNES, which also has a super strange name, um, Nintendo did say this year that they would make sure that both uh, small consoles would be in qu- sufficient quantities throughout 2018. So still a couple of months left in 2018. If you want one, I think the message is you should buy one this year because they might never come back um surprisingly enough uh, the last official numbers i've seen uh, during my research was that nintendo sold 3.6 million units 
which I don't understand. Like, I do understand why people were trying to get some and there was limited supply, but when we're talking about millions of units and limited supply constraint, it seems that, I think, uh, are you really going to that route of skepticism? But, like, was Nintendo trying to force something there? Like, they're sold a shit ton of them. Like, on, uh, of course, like, Nintendo is selling more switch right now but if those were wii u numbers they, i'm sure they will be happy to sell 3.6 million units compared to the minimal 10 millions wii u like this is not a small number for a small console and i'm sure that if they would have just made it available in not limited supplies uh this number would have been bigger i'm not so sure of that but then again like Nintendo is amazingly bad at predicting how many people will buy anything. Like they they underproduced basically everything since the Wii except for the Wii U. And the Wii U was sort of the opposite. They overestimated because they thought yeah. the Wii was a huge success and that sort of fucked their expectations completely. But like Amiibo are always like this. Like they always sell out immediately and there are like five per store max or something stupid like that like they're very terrible at estimating demand so i'm not surprised that it became limited they should have expected more though because people really like especially nowadays like they really like retro nes and snes stuff and the other thing is and we sort of talked about this on a previous episode when i was talking about my retro gaming setup is you can't just plug these consoles into modern televisions anymore. Like most TVs don't have. What are you doing? What are you doing? See, this is why I should never talk on the podcast because I always <laughs> steal the points. <laughs> that, no, that, that's all good points, but let's not talk about trying to plug them because uh, you're you might be right. You are might be right about estimating, and I think Nintendo's numbers for the. SNES Classic Edition shows it because the number I found for the NES Classic was 3.6 uh, last reported on June 30th. If we compare it with the number of units sold for the SNES, it's 5.28 millions, but reported on March 31st. So those numbers were about six months after the release because the Super NES was released last September, so right, more or less a year ago. So it seems to me that Nintendo kind of self-adjusts uh, with the SNES and also this year to make sure that with the uh, reproduced uh, NES, relaunch NES Classic that they make sure. So I'm eager to see updated numbers of both of these uh, by the end of the year to see how they do pine out. Funnily enough, uh, in June, the uh, NES Classic was the most sold home console in North America in unit quantity. Of course, the PS4 was the dominating the revenue but when i saw that uh that new that news article on mashable and on another, a lot of other uh website it quite made me laugh that when they re-release it it was the most sold in quantity uh home console and of course the price does do help a lot did they split ps4 pro and ps4 and xbox one x and xbox one because i think that could contribute to the issue <laughs> Uh, that's a good question. Uh, those number comes from the NPD group. Hmm, I don't know if they split those up. So, um, unsure, but e that could affect those. But even if they're not split or they're split, it, this number makes me laugh, and it's a kind of a 
I guess it's a good argument for your opinion of Nintendo is super bad at estimating success of their own products. Um, that is a good example that it outsold everything, including their own main home console, the Switch. Um, quickly again about uh, the consoles themselves. The NES has 30 games in total. Uh, the NES NES has uh, 21 games, including the unreleased Star Fox 2 game that you can unlock uh, after playing uh, the first level of Star Fox 1. And, uh, of course, depending on which market you're trying to buy these, they have the original design, meaning that for the NES, you have the typical NES design everywhere, except in Japan, where you have the Famicom. And then for the SNES, if you were to buy it in North America, you have the ugly one, I would call it. Like, never been a big fan of the SNES, but uh, I do agree with most people that the European and Australian design... no, no, wait. It's the Japanese design that is round and has the yeah. colorful buttons and everything. Uh, that is obviously the best design of SNES. So each market will have the console they've got uh, when they were originally released with those re-release classic edition. Japan and, so and co- Europe have basically the same design. It's just that the logo type is different for Super Famicom and Super Nintendo, but it's effectively the same design. Okay, and I think Australia also has the same European design too. Probably, yeah. Uh, are Are you going to mention the second Famicom Classic that was released in Japan? Do you know about this? Oh, I think I've seen that, but uh, go on. Right, so there are two models of the Famicom Classic in Japan. There's the original model, which is very close to what we had. Uh, it had a different lineup of game. Like I think there were some Final Fantasy games and a couple of things like that, which were it's easier to license those games in Japan than it is to license them here. Um, and then there was a new one, which was released this year, uh, which was for the 25th anniversary of Shonen Jump, which is a big manga magazine uh, that releases every week in Japan. Uh, and they made a special one that basically came with games that were based on series that were in Shonen Jump for the 25th anniversary, as well as the original Dragon Quest, which means these flew off the shelves incredibly fast. But they did still have some on sale when i was there and what's amazing is like yeah it's a nostalgia trip but a lot of these games were really shitty even back in the day uh and people are mostly buying it just because dragon quest one is on it because it's the only good game on the entire thing um but yeah so there there was that second one and i almost bought one because like i i don't particularly care for the actual software on it and we'll talk about that surely later but if you just want one as an artifact of like this little physical thing that represents the Famicom, like you, you don't care if it's the one with the actually good games or the one with the bad games. Like it's the same physical end product anyway. So I almost bought one, but I didn't because I like keeping my money to spend on expensive Apple watches instead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's going to the Hermes band budget. Oh God. <laughs> Uh, yeah, um, good point about the nostalgia because I want to go back on that just before we go to more technical details like emulation quality. We go back about uh, like uh, 4K gaming and all that stuff. But what I like about those and what is also funny is I, like I said, I've bought the NES, but recently I had the, uh, I had the opportunity to experience the SNES at a friend's place. And it, like UI wise, and the the console itself, yes, they are small and they are they look alike. Uh, uh, they are look alike of the original ones, 
but they offered more or less the same functionality. So I think they are the same technical like ARM CPU in it and same Linux version they run just have different emulators just from NES and SNES and they offer the same functionalities you can have that SNES has a bit more features though really because I seen that they have the same save points the same maybe maybe they have a different graphic stuff um, but felt to me that I don't know the specifics, but I know that the safe state support is much better on the Super Nintendo one than it is on Nintendo Entertainment System. Mm, okay, uh, that could be true. I I think the only save point I've created was for my Doctor Mario game, but more on bar, more on that later. Uh, one of the big physical difference is the cable length for the controllers. Um, that to me is a bit uh, jarring. That the NES had a short controller cable. I do understand why they're using wired controllers because prices, uh, but like three meters, like if you have a big TV, which everybody does these days, and even if you have a somewhat small one, like 30 to 40 inches, you shouldn't be like three meters away from your TV. You should be a bit more uh, farther than this. So in the end, the reason that the they chose that length for the original is that that was the original length of Famicom controller cables. Oh, really? Oh, that's a point I didn't know. Right, and because in Japan you don't have the room to have a big TV and to sit far away from the TV, it wasn't a problem for the Famicom. Um, Obviously, doesn't really work for uh, NES and doesn't really work, especially when the console is tiny and usually sits right under the TV. It doesn't work at all, uh, which is why when they had the complaints, they basically extended the cables for the SNES Classic. Which is two meters longer? But to me, it's kind of not ideal either. So it, it is. A, so I bought it to EB Games, which is a national uh, video game shop uh, in Canada. I think it's the equivalent of GameStop in the US. They have EB Games in the US too. Okay, but m- more or less, uh, like they always uh, EB Games these days are like HMV before they close down. And it's really bankrupt. sad. <laughs> yes. So they always try to upsell you with shit. And this is one of the first rare times I said yes to their upselling, which is give me an extension cable. Yeah, another thing that uh, you probably can't buy it at EB Games, but it does exist. There are wireless versions of these controllers that you can buy from 8BitDo, and they have been very highly rated. Um, So check those out if you want them. Oh, I might look into that. Let's put a link in the show notes so I can also maybe look at it too. Yes. Uh, so now let's go into nostalgia. So like I've said, I've, I've owned in the past, I still, like, my family still own an NES. Like, we do have an NES because the NES was the first console I played with when I was a kid. Um, the NES and the Sega Master, if you do remember what the Sega Master is, I uh, those two consoles were the first two ones that I've played when I was a kid, and the main reason was that they were my dad's console uh, when he was around my age at this point. Like so, he was in his twenties, um, and I guess by us uh, becoming kids and like as you become a parent, you have less time for games. So those went was put in a box somewhere, and then when we grew up, uh, they were removed because my dad was playing to them again so i've experienced the, those two as my first video game console but it was funny because the nes we only had a couple games uh and the list is the following so we had uh 
Super Mario Bros. and Duck On combo on the same cartridge. Yeah, we classic. Dr. Mario, Kirby's Adventure, and uh, Baseball Stars. And it's funny because <laughs> I didn't I was I didn't recall the name of that baseball game. So I was like NES baseball game and I got the list of the best <laughs> like the top 13 like or the I think it was I guess 13 game baseball games on the NES but they ordered it and it was the first one. So I saw the logo and I was like, "Oh yes, this one." So Baseball <laughs> Star, I'll put the link in the show notes of it. And when I saw that, like, you couldn't imagine all many time my brother and I spent playing like those four, five games. Obviously, uh, three of these are included in the NES classics because they are Nintendo classics, like the Mario games and Kirby are. Uh, for obvious and technical technological reason duck hunt can't be included that would have been nice if they tried to make it work with some like gyroscope functionality in the controller but i guess prices of the console cannot make that happen and baseball star was not included i wasn't sure if it was a really popular uh baseball games on the nes but uh, that's what we had uh so since when I was young, I spent a huge amount of time playing those games. To me, this is where the nostalgia kicked in. If I were to compare it with the Super NES, and that's a totally different experience from that that I had compared to Tony, because we talked a lot about that since we both played the Super NES to a, at a friend's place, and Tony was like, "Oh, I remember this game!" Like I'm sure all of those 21 games on the Super NES, Tony might have played. Uh, more than my played list, which my played list is summarized by this. Super Mario Kart and Super Mario World. And that is it. Because if I recall correctly, those were the two games we were playing when I was going to some of my neighbors when I was younger, when they had the NES, uh, the SNES. Uh, I'm sh- if I recall correctly, uh, they had other games, but usually they were trying to be nice. And then we would try to make sure that people can play together. And of course, it makes it easy with Mario Kart because you can play two players. And sometimes we wanted to play Mario because Mario is Mario. So I don't have a real story, to be honest, uh, with the SNES. So yes, I could buy it. I can try to enjoy those games now as somebody that just like loves video games and want to get a part of that history. But to me, there's no sentiment of nostalgia attached to the SNES. And it's funny because now I realize that with the limited cartridge we had for the NES, now I'm trying to relive some of, I'm not sure if I should call the the, the best sellers or the uh, the greatest hits like uh, Sony is calling their, some of their games. Uh, I, I'm not sure if I should, like, I should consider the games on the NES Classic greatest, greatest hits, but to me, they feel like greatest hits. Like you see, the first few Zeldas, you have Metroid on it, you have, uh, what are the other games I played recently? I played a lot of other random games i never heard of. Um, and to me, those, like, they're like something, like, they reminded me of those five games that I was playing when I was young, while also experimenting what was available at that time. Because I have a frame of reference, and I think that's the main distinction I have with the, and, uh, the NES compared to the Super NES, is this frame of reference exists because if we look at the next console we bought as family when I was a kid, my brother and I got an N64 as the family console. We were super excited about it. We loved it, but it was also 
was also at the time when we were starting to grow up. We we're more like in our teens, and we I do remember that at that time we were renting the we were renting a PS One quite frequently. So either we were renting different cartridges games for the N sixty four, or a couple of times per year we would also uh, get the luxury of renting the whole PS one console. And so I do remember uh, playing a lot of PS4 games, uh, but never owning uh, PS1. And then as, uh, since then, we're t- I was typically of a Sony family, so I went through the PS2, the PS3, and then of course PF- PS4. And by in- implicitly also, we're still a Switch family that hasn't changed. Sony has still has a Switch, but kind of never like I've played Xbox, but since the N64, I've always kind of moved away for the Nintendo home console and the Microsoft console and always go and went to the Sony consoles. So I could have the same sense of nostalgia and would maybe like to do the same if Sony were to create uh, like a PS1 classic or even a PS2 classic at some point. But it seems to me at this point that Sony did that through their uh, PS1s like spelled out what was the name of the those PS1 and PS2 games you can just buy on the store and just run it they were able to be ran on the PS3 and they had a specific name that I don't recall yeah it was PS1 classics which ran on PS3, PS Vita and PSP and there's PS2 classics as well which run on PS3 and then there's PS2 on PS4 which is a different uh, program uh, and the implementation details are sort of different and you have a different selection of games but those are a separate purchase from the PS3 versions yeah and and I don't know I, I, I'm sure it's I do know why I'm sure it's because of the physicality of getting a console which let's be honest if you open the NES and SNES it is a Arduino style board in it right and people have hacked the NES but the fact that you're getting the box that like you said Yannick a little bit earlier that it looks like the original box you also get merchandise like ads like a big poster of the original ad it builds up this nostalgia a trip uh because let's be honest, I spent a hundred Canadian dollars for three games, right? I didn't spend because most of them I've not played. Like Tony will also get enjoyment out of it because he's played the original Zelda, and it was funny because he says, "Oh, I remember that the cartridge was cool for the original Zelda." Like the next step would have been like having fake cartridge, but I think that's a, a step too far. But uh, having the physical box is a better nostalgia experience compared to just the emulator to me. And that's why those consoles are quite easy money for Nintendo. Uh, hopefully the uh, Nintendo Switch Online, which will offer more or less the same functionality as what Sony and I think Microsoft did the same too with some Xbox games too, uh, where you can just have the current own console that runs emulation and give you access to this back catalog of selected titles. Uh, they will offer that, but I think it doesn't create the same feelings and same emotion and same like bring back memories of a different time. Right. Well, I know for a while people were very, very concerned that there was not going to be a virtual console on the Switch at all because it's really weird. Like there's the Twitter account we bring up on every episode, put everything on Switch (laughs) and like 
people really want NES and Super NES games on the Switch as well. They want everything on the Switch. They want Beat Mania for Wonderswan on the Switch. Uh, and it was really weird. They were putting out these tiny consoles, which were, I mean, they technically were competing with the Switch, but weren't really competing with the Switch because they were targeting different markets. But everybody that I knew was saying, why aren't you just releasing these games on Switch? I would rather play it there. And I think, uh, like, I can sort of relate with your... Uh, your experience of like wanting to take it out of the box and everything. And it's an experience in itself. I just express that in a different way. Whereas I actually buy the original system and then it becomes sort of like a hobby of mine to figure out how to hook them up to modern screens and stuff, which I I know you wanted to like talk about that. So I don't want to go on too much about it. No, I think it it does fit rightly. So at this point, like I, I'm looking right now at like I have these uh, stacks of drawers, and in them I have a bunch of different consoles. Like I'm looking at my Sega Saturn, I have a PS1, I have a PS2, uh, I have a Wii in there somewhere, just because it's a cheaper way to play GameCube games on HD systems. It's very complicated to play an actual GameCube on an HD monitor these days, um, and I'm always sort of going to prefer original hardware to emulation because I feel it's not the same. And I guess that's sort of where we segue into software on these things, because at least for the classic edition consoles, I have not been impressed with the quality of the emulation. And I I should set up the context that Nintendo on the Wii went to tremendous lengths with their emulation compared to what they did on the classic edition. Almost every game that was released on the virtual console on the Wii had a custom build of the emulator for its compatibility for that game that they outsourced to M2, which is a company that is very well known in the Japanese game industry for being like the masters of emulation imports. And so they put a tremendous amount of effort into the Wii. Then on the Wii U, they sort of like, I don't know what they did. They were picking their nose for like three years. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, the- you can just say Wii U at this point and then it answers your pro- question. Yeah, like they released some virtual console games, but it was very limited and it baffled everyone. Like, why can't I just transfer my Wii virtual console games to the Wii U virtual console? Like, aren't these the same thing? And I guess not. Uh, And I guess they added GameCube and Wii games technically because those ran on the same hardware as the Wii U except downclocked. So it wasn't even really emulation. You were just running the games. Uh, It's what you get when your console is really just a really upgraded GameCube. And then on Switch, there was absolutely nothing. And it really shocked people. And they released the Classic Edition, and then the Classic Edition has eh, subpar emulation. I mean, it's good. It's fine for the games that are on there. For the most part, there are a couple of compatibility issues here and there in certain places. Yeah, which, if I recall correctly, because I've watched a couple of uh, Digital Foundry videos, they are more or less okay. Uh, and you know what? It, I know for this is the part of me where I love video games, but I'm not a huge video game nerd. And to me, that's why I was always wanted to start with the nostalgia aspect because this console was bought for that. Yes, I could buy a shit ton more of hardware to make sure that my physical NES or my gaming PC is plugged into my TV and produce more better results, but. For my nostalgic needs, it is good enough. It, it is good. Whether it is Indian good emulation, if it's not bad, if it's just good enough, for me, it is good enough. 
Well, like, one of the things that comes up a lot uh, for people, like, in the retro gaming community is how are the pixels scaled? And, like, yeah, I bet for, like, 95% of the people who are buying this, they don't give a shit how the pixels are scaled. They're not going to notice that the pixels aren't scaled at an integer scale unless you run it in 720p. Like, they don't give a shit. And... I think that's fine for those people. Like they, they can buy the system and be perfectly content with it. And then there are other products on the market which exist for the hardcore people who want to run on original hardware or recreations of original hardware. Like that's the new trend these days is FPGA recreations of the original hardware. And I'm personally very interested in the Super NT, which is the uh, Super Nintendo FPGA system. So yeah, there there are hardcore options for the hardcore people, and I think this is a great option for the less hardcore people. The problem is the hardcore people were still buying this because most of the hardcore people are also collectors, so they want yeah. this anyway, <laughs> and that really just screwed everything up. Yeah, yeah. So to me, like it looks good. I have, um, I'm not disappointed, but I have one of the best 4K TV on the market. Okay, and I'm not saying that because to brag, but I've said that because I took the time to make sure that I have the best 4k tv on the market because one i want to do 4k it should look good when i do 1080p it should look good but what this console is doing to make it look good for hd purposes is good enough like it maybe there's some issues and i could have better like you've sent me an amazing video from my live in gaming about 4k retro gaming and i spent the fucking 45 minutes to <laughs> listen to it and was just like in a huge awe in front of it yeah. It is an amazing video, and we'll put it in the show notes. It is an amazing video describing how can you do retro gaming on modern TVs. But I could do that and spend shit ton of money and a shit ton of my time or spend $100 and have to my needs and my taste the same results. Yeah, and I, I think like the, the way to put it is like, some people will tinker with cars and have like their project car. We have project gaming setups where we have like all of these consoles that we want to hook up to our gaming setup, but like tinkering with our setup to get everything hooked up correctly and at the highest quality possible is part of the fun of being a retro gamer for a lot of people. Like there are blogs, which I, I'm not exaggerating that focus entirely on reviewing used video processors that were meant oh for goodness. tv stations that were digitizing old vhs footage wow and reviewing how they upscale games <laughs> oh my god and like there are several websites like this and it's like it, first of all it, it's incredibly therapeutic to read it you're like ah this is very interesting it's very relaxing to read this blog about ntsc video signals and scan lines but at the same time it's like I know that if I tell someone, oh, you want to play a Super Nintendo game? Well, first of all, you have to go on eBay and buy this $350 video <laughs> scaler. Like, you've lost them already. And then you tell them, oh, I then spend 25 minutes playing around with the settings to scale everything up in perfect integer scale. And then, oh, yeah, sometimes you're going to put in games in the game uh, that change resolution. Yes, sometimes it just glitches and you have to restart the video scaler. My bad. And it's like, no, people don't want that. People just want... Point and click, I want to play Super Mario, let me play Super Mario. And if they can get it in a cute box, like that's a bonus for them and they're willing to pay a hundred bucks for that, and that's what you did, perfectly fine. Uh but yeah, like for me, the problem is once you see the imperfections, you're ruined and you don't unsee them. Or at least that's the way I am. And so 
I wouldn't want to play on an NES Classic Edition because I would notice the pixel flickering or whatever and the scaling, and I would be like, oh, this bugs me. Just like my iPhone 4.7-inch iPhone bugged me every single time I used it. Uh, So I'm not going to be like a super cheerleader for this product, but it has no market, and it fits that market very well. Oh, totally. And I, it's funny because I have a huge notes for the rest of the topic and emulation quality, which is one of the topic. I was like three lines. It was really like good for my needs. Looks good on my 4K TV. Here's the my life in gaming video. And I assume like Kenny would be like, Oh my God, why do you think that? And like, like, I know you understand my point, but I knew you had a lot to say about that. So that makes me laugh a lot. Yeah. Like I'm going to bring up two issues. These are not things that you are going to bug you if you notice them. I'm going to leave the big one that <laughs> if you notice it, it'll bug you forever. I won't mention that one. But I think the big ones were mentioned in the video I watched from uh, Digital Foundry, so I think it's safe. Yeah, it's like there's um, there's anti-seizure methods because a lot of old games didn't care about uh, people with epilepsy who could potentially get seizures. So they have changed... Anytime that there is a big screen fill, uh, there is now an added opacity layer to that thing to make the effect less pronounced. And I believe there's a fade now between uh, the full screen color fills instead of just flashing very quickly. So that is a quality of life improvement. And I think maybe they had to do it for certain cases. Um, yeah, even for legal reason, I would say. Yeah, probably for that. Uh, Sound emulation is also imperfect, uh, and you are unlikely to notice unless you, like, listen to the soundtracks for the games every day, all day, but there are imperfections in the sound emulation. Uh, And there are, like, very specific visual effects in Yoshi's Island that are not recreated correctly, but, like, those are the three big things, and then there's the other thing, which I'm not going to say because I want people to continue enjoying their their classic <laughs> edition consoles. But it's good. All of the stuff you mentioned was uh, at least covered in the Digital Funny video, so uh, it's, you're not spoiling me. I already knew about them and, I guess, ignored them. You, you probably already know the actual big one. It's just it doesn't bother you, which is fine. Yeah, yeah. Better off that way. Um... Is that it for quality? Do you have any other notes about it? Because, uh, like I said, my notes were quite short on it. Uh, not really. Uh, I do want to actually point out, as we're talking about this, that this product is actually a product of Nintendo of Europe, of all things. Um, and people found out about this by, like, breaking apart the firmware when they were trying to hack it. Uh, so, yeah, like... I guess the assignment probably came from Nintendo Japan, but all of the work on this actual system was done in Europe and they use a lot of open source emulators uh, in this and they do give attribution in the license screen. Um, So like there are a lot of bugs that you can retrace to the open source emulators, which is how a lot of this stuff got found out in the first place. And also, uh, I think that's also why they are easily hackable. I've seen some, uh, forums where you said you can put like 700 games on the hardware that you have and not limited to the 30 games as for example for the nes like they are somewhat easy to quite easy to hack because they're using a lot of this uh open source technology yeah it was a quickly made product basically and yeah that's not necessarily a bad thing uh it was made by the nerds division like nintendo europe research and development team yeah like that yeah, which is pretty good because these days you don't hear about much going on outside of Nintendo of Japan, to be honest. Like Nintendo of America's American studios 
have been completely silent for many years, and I think they might even be closed by now. Um, so it's nice to hear that they still have work to do in those divisions instead of administrivia for Nintendo of Japan. Good. Um, last point. So while I was talking about the nostalgia, and I was describing how I like DNS and how this reminds me of my childhood, this, I hope... That is a trend that Nintendo will continue. And the next console in line is Yannick's favorite console. No. Yes. Yes. There's a lot of rumors. Come on, there's a lot of rumors. I know I'm trolling you, but it's true. There's a lot of rumors that the N64 should have its classic edition at some point. And you know what? If it happens, I'll just freak the fuck out. And Yannick will just cry his own money. It will just die of crying. Because you know what? I'm saying it this on this podcast. I'm buying you one. Even if you put it in the trash, I'm giving you one as a birthday gift. I don't care. Well, first You're of all... You're getting one. Yeah, sure. I don't care. Uh, first of all, this <laughs> technically almost exists. And I'm not joking. Oh, really? Yeah. So in China, uh, Nintendo released a system called the iQ back in the GameCube days. And... The iQ was a N64 controller that you could plug into your TV that could run N64 games. Uh, and it, there was an online store that you could buy N64 games on and load them onto your controller and plug them into your TV. And this was an official Nintendo thing. Uh, in fact, iQ is the Nintendo brand in, um, in China. They did the iQ DS, which is Nintendo DS. And I think the Wii was also released or the, I know there was at least another system. Um, but the N64 version of IQ was basically the only one that was an actually different system. Uh, and that's sort of more or less what I expect the N64 Classic is going to be, if it exists. The other thing that I was going to point out is, if you technically want to go by the pattern, they should be releasing it this month, because they've done one every holiday season for two years. And technically, they should have one for this year, and it would be the N64 uh, but they haven't announced it yet, so unless they do it at that Nintendo Direct that's coming up, and I would yeah. be so angry if they did it. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be so funny and so sad at the same time that we record the day before, and then the next day I'm like, oh my god, oh my god! But yes. I will be sure to post out-of-context screenshots of the conversation to Twitter in the past when you're listening to this Uh if it happens tomorrow. If it doesn't, well, I, I, I win. Uh, no, no, no. If it doesn't happen tomorrow, you don't win. You just don't lose. If it never happens and then we die and never happen, then you'll win. That's where I will concede. There is one major issue I see with uh, the chances of an N64 Classic Edition coming out. And that is that aside from Nintendo's internal emulation, which they've used on the Wii... Uh, N64 emulation is in a very bad state, which means hmm. that they wouldn't really have any open source emulators that are any good to use as a baseline oh. for this. So they would have to use whatever M2 had cooked up for the N64 and the Wii and port that to Linux for that to actually work because it's probably the, the state-of-the-art emulator for N64 that exists right now. I'm not hmm. entirely sure how the IQ did stuff. I don't actually know if it was emulation or if it was running proper n64 hardware um so i should probably go look that up and what's also interesting about the iq is that for certain games 
The Chinese version of Zelda, I think, is one of the fastest with regards to skipping dialogue as quickly as possible. So some people actually <laughs> play and speedrun Zelda on IQ because it's the fastest version <laughs> to play. Wow. What a strange reason to get this Chinese uh, version of it. But it, it's quite interesting, the, the fact that he, this one was not cartridge-based, but you download the games from the internet. Yeah, it was really cool. It's just unfortunate that all the games are shit. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You're getting one, my friend. Uh, I, I'll spend the money and uh, make it like... say uh, I'll, I can already imagine what I can write on the card that will give it to you. Oh. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So... I know there's a lot of throwing in the past few episodes about N64, but uh, to me, like I mentioned, that I would like to see maybe Sony do that too at some point with old consoles. Uh, the next in line for Nintendo makes sense, and it seems that people of our age are like saying to Nintendo, shut up and take my money. So uh, they could do that because the N64 is more or less the uh, console generation of our youth with the PS1 and PS2 and the GameCube. So I'm sure uh, if we give them a couple of years, we grow a bit older and they release that, they wait for that and they release it. Uh, I'm sure our nostalgia reflexes will kick in even more and it could be a successful product too. You know, this whole plan could backfire. Maybe people buying the N64 Classic Edition will make them realize that the games weren't good in the first place and that they didn't actually like it because it was a good game. They liked it because it was technologically novel in 1997. Uh, The only sad thing that I heard during those, uh, that I've seen doing doing some research for those rumors is people are unsure if rare games will be included because rare is now a microsoft property and that will make me totally sad and that that if it doesn't if it were to get released okay that's the only concession i will give you if it were to get released without rare games then you win uh, was donkey kong country not on the super nintendo classic because that's a rare game it is you're right it is yes i saw it i saw it in the list of available games like, I could see uh, Rare having an objection for games that they have re-released on Xbox recently in the Rare collection, but that's Conqueror's Bad Fur Day, and I don't think they're going to put that on the N64 Classic because it's rated M for Mature. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I think they're fine. Okay, yeah, that's uh, that's uh, somewhat reassuring, but uh, I think you're right that the article I saw also mentioned that they were like, it's a worry we have, but... Because the SNES includes some rare game, uh, maybe we'll be fine. In a way, like the NES, I just want it for a golden eye because I need to buy a new. That's uh, not happening, by the way. Oh, come on. You can't do it because it's a bond license. They could do Perfect Dark, but they couldn't do Golden Eye. That that could be the other problem with it. So I need to find a way to uh, find an AV cable for the next 64 you gave me so I can play Golden Eye again. And that's it for t- for my topic about the N64. Really great buy. Uh, if you don't care too much about like having the best emulation technology to play those games, uh, it is a great spend to just plug it into your TV and have fun and remember the time you've played uh, with the NES directly. Yep. Uh, I should also mention in passing that if you are a fan of retro games, you could listen to a podcast that I am occasionally on where we play Super Nintendo games called the Super Nintendo Exploration Squad at snes.zone. Good, let's wrap it up.
Sure. So if you want to find the show notes for this episode, which I have a feeling will be packed full of stuff because we've mentioned the show notes a lot this episode, yeah, uh, you can true. find them at limitlesspossibility.net slash 96, or you can find all our episodes at limitlesspossibility.net. You can find the show on Twitter at limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. Or you can find us individually on Twitter at, uh, you can find me at Sakurina. That's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. And you can find Lucadivie at Lucanoj. That's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And we'll see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks.